Okay. <laughs> Let me pray with you. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just thank you for uh, Ed and just all that you've done in and through him over the years, his ministry. Uh, he uh, genuinely loves you, and he's a very genuine person, Father, and I just thank you for him. And I just pray, Lord, that you will not only bless him this morning, but that uh, you will just uh, work in and through him, he and his wife, through the these days and uh, into the future. And also, Lord, as we ponder our PDC future, we just pray that you will also guide and direct. Lord, uh, just anoint our dear brother this morning, and I just uh, praise you, Father, for, for, again, your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, Jim, it's quite an introduction. It's a lot to live up to, say the least. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's uh, a great privilege for my wife and I, Carolyn, uh, to be here this morning to meet many of you for the first time. <clears throat> Though I have known of Three Hills, Alberta, since I was a child, and even thought in those earlier years I would end up here, evidently God had other plans, so that it was only a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, I set foot on this hallowed ground for the first time. I came at that time to meet with some of your leaders to explore the possibility of serving as your transitional pastor, as Jim has men mentioned, and of course that's why I'm here today. <clears throat> and uh, of course we are in the midst of, you are in the midst of seeking God's will concerning this kind of relationship for a short season of time. <clears throat> You've already heard something of my background, so I won't go into further detail about all of that at this time, except to say that after some 35 years of pastoral ministry in four different places, Regina, North Battleford, Saskatoon, and Prince George, I have been active for the last 14 years in pastoral transition ministry in about as many churches and Christian ministries. Most recently, after 36 years in Prince George, quite quickly and clearly, God led us to move to Calgary to live out God's will for us there by being closer to our family. We have four children and 11 grandchildren, two families who live here in Alberta, and two who at this time are living in the lower mainland in BC. Though it's been a big move, involving many different emotions, not to mention physical demands, it's exciting to see how God has led and is affirming this decision. As God leads, I will share more with you about God's gracious ways in our lives, both recently and in the past. And as I thought about our introduction to one another today, my mind went back to a very special chapter in the Bible that helps us with the big picture, Isaiah 40. And of course, Isaiah is a Bible book rich in allusions to the nature of the gospel and God's plan for his people. This book is one of the most sublime expressions of God's heart through his, this great prophet, some 700 years before the birth of Christ. This particular chapter, I think, 
has a wonderful way of speaking to us about the importance of perspective, about gaining a larger view of what's actually happening in our lives, especially in the midst of change. One of the reasons problems become problems in our personal lives and our way becomes confused, I think, is that we lose our sense of perspective. Typically, we tend to become so focused on the problems around us that we miss seeing the larger picture. Or as we sometimes say, to miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we need to step back to see the big picture, to get that 30,000-foot view. We need to come to the place where we see our lives and situations from the sky, or more importantly, from heaven's perspective. I've always been a lover of maps and geography. My wife will know that. And now GPS. I find it con I constantly need to know where I am in relation to the, to the uh, bigger picture. And this is especially important when you're seeking to navigate new territory as we are experiencing these days in our personal lives. A GPS makes all the difference, as you know, in helping one find their way in a new city, for example. Thank God for that kind of technology. <clears throat> well, Isaiah 40, I think, has a wonderful way of helping us gain a larger perspective on what life and the world is all about, and about God's ways in our lives. A reminder of the greatness of the God that we serve. Someone has figured out that Isaiah is really like a miniature Bible. You probably know that the Bible didn't come with chapter and verse divisions as we have them today. Paul, for example, didn't have the, the Old Testament in the, in the divisions that we have it today. That actually didn't happen. Those divisions didn't happen until 1227 when a fellow by the name of Stephen Langdon, an archbishop of Canterbury, divided the books of the Bible into chapters. The verse divisions came later, 1488 in the Old Testament and 1555 in the New Testament. Just a little tidbit uh, that you might be interested in. Anyway, I'm not sure that Langton knew what he was doing when he came to Isaiah. But it turns out that Isaiah, with its 66 books, is something like the Bible in miniature. The first 39 chapters are like the 39 books of the Old Testament that focus in on the failures of God's people to live by his law. But the last 30, 27 chapters of Isaiah are like the New Testament that reveals the wonders of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 40 is the turning point. So I can't think of a better place to focus our attention uh, today than at Isaiah 40, on, on Isaiah 40, because it provides perspective in an otherwise confusing world. Well, of course, it's too, it's too long a chapter to focus on all the details, but I want to give you sort of the broad perspective of what this a great chapter is all about. Let's pray for God's blessing as we do this. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here today, worshiping together with your people, 
and looking at your word like this. And I ask that as we open our hearts to your word, you will help us to really see it in, in the way that you intended and that you will cause us to respond in a way that would please you. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this psalm, or this chapter begins with these beautiful words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This speaks of the world's uh, need, really, for God's glory, because the theme of this chapter really is the glory of God. And it begins with these words of comfort, but not at the expense of calling a spade a spade, calling sin sin and truth truth. And what we have in these first few verses is a prophetic description of the ministry, really, of John the Baptist. Notice the parallel to the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospels. It's difficult for us to imagine how huge an impact John the Baptist had on the nation of Israel in his time. Here was this man, clothed like a wild man, but preaching a gospel of repentance in preparation for the coming of the kingdom, for the coming of Jesus. Well, you know, throughout the history of the church, God has raised up these kinds of people to call people back uh, from, the, from uh, their lives, back to God. <clears throat> and in many ways, that is the kind of ministry to which God has called the church today, to be the voice of one calling out in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. And there is a sense in which I think the church today, just as John the Baptist did in his time, is called to prepare the way for Christ coming again. If you're a Christian, there is a sense in which God has that in mind for you. And that's what he desires of the church or any local, local church, just like this one. In the midst of the moral desert of our times, which it seems is greater than ever, God has in mind for believers to go out like John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, pointing people to Jesus, who alone can bring the change that reveals the wonder of his glory. So, is there, so there's this great need for the world to see the glory of God, but where can they see it is the question. Well, they see it, in, first of all, through his word. Verse 6 to 8 says, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You know, <clears throat> The older I grow, the more it is evident that no matter how great someone is, it really isn't long before they are gone. 
Just as the grass withers and the landscape changes, I am always amazed by this. Family members, actually this last week, the last member of my father's family passed away. They're gone, that whole family, that whole generation. Political leaders, cultural figures, even Christian and church leaders, many who I used to look up to are now fading or gone altogether. So we need to keep this perspective on life that no matter how large someone seems, they will pass on. And, by the way, of course, it's important for us to remember that concerning our own lives, right? There comes a time when we're gone. <clears throat> but, in the midst of all that, God's word remains. God's truth stands strong in the midst of all the changes and fading glories of men. The word of the Lord has a glory, in fact, that gets brighter and brighter all the time. That's why the Bible continues to be the best-selling book in the whole world. Over 100 million copies of the Bible are sold or distributed every year. The Bible means everything to us because it is the foundation of what the Christian life and the work of the church is all about. There's a song I recall from childhood, and you will probably remember that it as well. The Bible stands, though the hills may tumble, it will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands. Remember that? Well, I hope you, that that song is your song, and that you can sing that in one way or another as well. So, it's a glory that stands through the unfading truth of God's Word. But there is another glory here, and it is a glory that is ultimately revealed in the living Word, God's Son. Verses 9 to 11 say, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on, high, on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And these verses we have a reference to the specific revelation of God's word through the good news concerning Jesus. You know, so many things, as I've said, are constantly changing, but what doesn't change is the proclamation of God's reality and of his grace and kindness made known to us in Jesus Christ. He is the living word, the great shepherd for all who put their trust in him. You know, amidst all the pain and suffering that exists in our world, he invites us to proclaim Christ. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, the cities of Canada and the world, to places like Three Hills and those other towns that surround you, Acme, Iracana, Bicycler, Red Deer, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, the world. Here is your God. What great news we have to bring. What a great calling we have to fulfill. 
And in these confusing times, we desperately need to be strengthened in our conviction that the gospel from God is what the world needs to hear. The story of God's plan in Christ to reconcile all things to himself. I think we need to be reminded again of the great wonder and beauty of the gospel in all of its rich and glorious fullness. Well, that's one of the ways, of course, one of the greatest ways in which the glory of God is manifested. But, of course, it is, glory, it is a glory that is magnificently, ev magnificently evident in creation. And we see this especially in verses 12 right through the 26. Now, this is pretty long, but it's so beautiful. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. And then it has this little parenthesis here. Lebanon is not sufficient for, uh, for an altar of fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? It sits, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look in the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Well, again and again, we need to think about the graces of God, our, our, our God as he is described here. We need to be reminded that he is bigger than any part of his universe. His hand large enough to contain all the oceans of the world his mind knowledgeable enough to absolutely exclude any need for counsel or teaching from anyone. What a contrast to the puny, idolatrous images that we people create to replace this God of glory. And as for the nations and the islands of the world, 
They are like a drop in the bucket, as dust on the scales, as less than nothing in terms of comparable glory. And the most glorious princes among them quickly wither and fade away just as plants dry up and and die when he blows his wind of judgment upon them. And as incredible as it sounds, though the stars seem numberless to us, He knows each one of them and calls them all by name, each one in its appointed place. Not one of them is missing. Well, this is an amazing description of the greatness of God's glory. And if you ever wonder about God's power and ability, you would do well to come back often to Isaiah 40. Or just when you might begin to think that the universe revolves around ourselves, and our own opinions. We need to read Isaiah 40 to see again how small we really are in relation to God and his majesty. And wasn't this the experience of Job, that Old Testament saint, that fellow who went through all of that? In the end, what changed him was a revelation of the glory of God. And so it is for us. The majesty of God's glory in his creation in a mighty storm or even some natural disaster, should have a humbling effect upon our lives. It should serve to make us realize how small we really are. But you've already had a hint to this last point in the uh, children's story. The real clincher concerning the glory of God comes at the very end of this chapter when we read that his glory also extends despite his greatness, in his willingness to stoop to the need of those who longingly and expectantly look for him for his help and strength. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, God is not so large and mighty that he doesn't also know the very smallest detail of each one's need. He who counts the stars and calls them all by name knows about Canada, about Alberta, about Three Hills, and the Prairie Tabernacle Church. He knows about all the individual people who are part of it. Surely, the majesty of God... is that even though it is true that the nations are as dust on the scale to him, he brings all his majesty and power, his grace to bear in the lives of those who put their hope in the Lord. You know, about 15 years ago, we were working on an almost, almost 20 years of pastoral ministry in Prince George when it came to a close. Uh, somewhat more abruptly than we expected, It was not an easy transition for my wife, Carolyn, and me. Uh, 
And through a series of events following that, the Lord led to the idea of Second Wind Ministries. Initially, its purpose was to help others in ministry with similar challenges to what we ourselves had experienced. But, as I said earlier, in the last 14 years or so, Second Wind has meant working with churches to help them through their times of crisis and transition. Second Wind takes its name from the world of long-distance running, something I used to enjoy in my younger years. It's the idea of breaking through some kind of psychological barrier so that you're able to run with greater ease and joy in the latter part of the race. And if you know anything about running, you know that getting your second wind is an important element in that exercise. Second wind means finding new energy for life and service after feeling like you've stalled. It also alludes, by the way, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whom we often discover after we come to the end of ourselves. Sooner or later, the idea of second wind, I believe, is an appropriate metaphor for all of us. Because no matter who we are, at one time or another, we all stall. We all hit some kind of wall. Things happen. Discouragements come. Life turns sour. Or we hit a rogue wave. And sadly, too often such experiences become the means to serious spiritual setback and loss. There are many spiritual casualties because of these things. But it needn't be that way. For Second Wind is all about recovery, about resilience in such circumstances. No matter how dark the path, no matter how deep our fall, there is always hope for new grace from God for our lives, if we want it. Corey Ten Boom put it this way, of Holocaust fame, you recall her, many of you would, no pit is so deep, but that God's love and grace are not deeper still. And the question is, how does that happen? Well, it happens, I think, as we get our eyes back on the greatness of God and what a personal relationship with Him is all about. We get our second wind when we've exhausted our own store of resources, when we get our eyes uh, off ourselves and onto something much bigger, particularly God himself. And it may be this morning that some of you feel like you've hit a wall. The passage this morning is a reminder that those who get their eyes back on him are the ones who gain a sense of perspective on reality and their own lives. It is those who come as little children longingly and expectingly looking up into his face that will experience the resilience we've been thinking about. They are the ones who will soar on wings like eagles, who will get their second wind to run and not grow tired, to walk even in the midst of pain and not get discouraged. So though the way sometimes looks dark, we have every reason to hope, to think good things of the future, to get ready for a new day of God's grace and glory in our lives, in the church and in the community. And I hope and pray this morning that whatever your situation is in your own life or the challenge that lies before you as a church, you will be encouraged to know that God's grace is still rich and accessible as it ever was. You know, sometimes I've found God allows circumstances to arise in our lives that push us to step back and to see the larger picture of what he wants to do. 
And so it has been for us. I remember a time when I, I, in which I or we felt overwhelmed. But God used that time, I think, to take us deeper into himself, to see our lives from a different perspective, and to become more of what he wanted us to be. You know, for many years, from when I was a teenager, really, I made a commitment to read the Bible through every year. And I did that for many, many years. I did it faithfully. I did it religiously. <laughs> I did it in a disciplined fashion. But then when this kind of experience came upon us, I had to step back and say, you know, am I, am I just reading to get through or am I reading to know God? <laughs> and so I began to slow my pace so that I began to read the Bible very slowly, methodically, systematically, but slowly. Right now, for example, I'm reading Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Romans, and the book of 1 Samuel. And I spend several days sometimes on one chapter just to see what God's trying to say, to hear his voice, and I'm amazed by the things that he shows me. And so it is, I think, in our own lives. Sometimes, you know, we have, we have all the methods, we have all the familiarity with what, how to live the Christian life, we have our disciplines and so on. But are we knowing and connecting with God is the bottom line. And I think sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives in order to give us new perspective through seeing the greatness of his glory. And so no doubt it is with your church in this time as well. To be an even more fruitful church in the future is no doubt you know God has been asking you to take a step back. To try and see the bigger picture of who he is and what he has in mind for you in these days. That you will see how God's greatness has been revealed in the natural world, in his word, and in his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, hopefully you will be, be encouraged to open your heart in new ways to him, enabling you to more fully understand his plan and purpose for you in these very critical days in which we live. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, what can we say in the light of your great majesty and power as it's been revealed to us in your word, in nature, and especially in your Son, Jesus Christ. Like Job, we are forever silenced by your words and the revelation of your great power and majesty. Forgive us, Lord, for our, our idolatries, for our preoccupation with lesser things than your great glory. We confess that we are often confused and perplexed by the events and processes of our lives. And in our consternation, we easily lose sight of you and your greatness. And instead of being bright lights of your glory, we become shadows that hide your face. Forgive us, Lord. Today, once again, in the depth of your word, we see your glory in the world you have made, but especially in your Son. Thank you, thank you for the revelation of your glory. And may the sight of your glory serve to revive us, we pray. Revive your people.
Oh God, I pray for your blessing, for your help, for this church in this time. A church with a great heritage, a great history. May it know something of the revelation of God's glory in these days. That it might go on to fulfill its calling in this world, in this time. We ask that you would be gracious to us as we go forward. No matter who we are, individually and as a community, we ask this. In the precious, most wonderful name of Jesus, amen.